Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 85. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here before we get started. I want to remind everyone that if you like this podcast, please share it around social media. And you can find me on social media by liking me on Facebook. Just go out and search for Brian McClanahan. It's Facebook, uh, Brian McClanahan, Brian with no. Or you can follow me on Twitter or like my YouTube page. Also, you can go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. Give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook and free audiobook of Forgotten Founders. So it's painless and I'll send you an email here and there. You're probably going to get a few more in the upcoming months because my forthcoming How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America is released on September 18, 2017. And I'm glad to say that the promotions are done for that. So uh, they're ready to go. What I mean by that, they're done. They're ready to go. And uh, you can go out and get those. So first and foremost, uh, the exciting thing about this book, and I'm very excited to announce this, that Ron Paul has written the foreword. So if Ron Paul endorses it, you got to get it. And you can get some bonuses by pre-ordering the book. Now, I will make this easier uh, probably by the end of the week to do this. But for right now, if you go out to your favorite retailer and you buy a copy, pre-order a copy of the book, and you send me an email at blamehamilton at gmail.com, the email is blamehamilton at gmail.com, I will send you, if you order one book, I will send you the ebook, The Jeffersonian Solution, written by yours truly. If you order two or more, pre order two or more books, not only will you get the free ebook, The Jeffersonian Solution, you will also get a six lecture course on Alexander Hamilton. That is only available for people that pre order two or more of How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. So if you do both of those, take a screenshot of your order from wherever you order it from, attach that to the email. BlameHamilton at gmail.com, and I will send you that stuff. Now, this will be a little easier to do, like I said, probably by the end of the week in terms of how you can go out and, and find these things to do it but and give you all the explanation. The other thing is if you pre-order the book, just one, you'll be entered for a drawing that will take place in October. The grand prize winner will get a lifetime membership to LibertyClassroom.com. Um, and the second-place winner will get a Basic Plus membership, and the third-place winner a Basic membership. So uh, all of that stuff is actually spelled out on my website, brianmcclanahan.com forward slash books forward slash blame Hamilton. So uh, you can get those things just by pre-ordering the book. Share that with your friends as well. Uh, you're not going to want to miss this book. It's uh, just a, one of the best things I've ever written. So, And, of course, Ron Paul has written the Ford. So go out there and pre-order How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. Now, that said, I'd like to talk about a topic that a lot of people don't really know anything about. Um, I was actually reading a little book uh, by Garland Tucker, 
and it's entitled Conservative Heroes, 14 Leaders Who Shaped America from Jefferson to Reagan. Conservative Heroes by Garland Tucker III. It was published by ISI. And um, it's an interesting little book. And, of course, uh, Clyde Wilson and I wrote Forgotten Conservatives in American History about three uh, three years or so before this book came out. So uh, some of the people in here are exactly the same. Uh, For example, um, the author, which is Tucker focuses on John C. Calhoun, which is pretty amazing because, um, of course, Calhoun was in Russell Kirk's conservative mind, uh, but nowadays Calhoun is so demonized, you know, if you even say you like Calhoun just a little bit, uh, even people in the mainstream conservative movement often consider you to be a little bit of an oddball. But Garland Tucker uh, actually has a nice little chapter on Calhoun. He also has a pretty good chapter on Nathaniel Macon and John Randolph. Uh, which is um, which is interesting. Of course, Randolph is also in the conservative mind, and uh, I wrote about Nathaniel Macon in my uh, Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers. Uh, so Macon is a very important member of the founding generation, an unknown member of the founding generation for most people in the United States. Uh, if you listen to this podcast or the Abbeville Institute podcast, um, or you know maybe you're more interested in uh, the limited government position, Uh, which you probably are if you're listening to this podcast, then you might know a little bit about Macon. I'm not going to focus on Macon today, though I will talk about Macon in a future podcast episode uh, because I think the quids are one of the more interesting groups in American political history. Uh, He also has a uh, a chapter on Grover Cleveland, which uh, I've written about uh, extensively. He was in My Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America and also in uh, Forgotten Conservatives in American History. Uh, the chapter, though, that I want to focus on, and he actually starts with Jefferson and Madison, which, again, is almost unheard of to say that Jefferson and Madison are somehow conservatives, particularly Jefferson. Uh, and, of course, this echoes Clyde Wilson's position that as Jefferson is conservative, and I've written how Jefferson was a conservative as well. Uh, Jefferson was a conservative uh, not in Virginia, per se, but he was a conservative uh, in uh, in his position on federalism. And so I think that's an important part of what makes up American conservatism. But the chapter I think that's very, very good is a little chapter that he wrote on Josiah Bailey. Now, most people don't know anything about Josiah Bailey. And so that's why I want to talk about him today. And and uh, Josiah Bailey is also, or was also from North Carolina. And North Carolina, the Tar Heel State, is so important for American conservatism, American liberty. Uh, it's, it produced some of the best minds in the uh, American conservative tradition, uh, including Nathaniel Macon, uh, who is was just a giant of uh, Jeffersonian decentralization. Uh, you can't get around focusing on Macon. And, and Macon, along with a number of other people from North Carolina, uh, opposed the Constitution uh, North Carolina did not ratify the Constitution until 1789, and uh, Macon, of course, was a member of the founding generation. Uh, he was a a, uh, a Revolutionary War soldier, uh, so I'm going to focus on Macon in another podcast, but uh, you had people like Wiley Jones in, in, uh, in North Carolina who said, look, this, this Constitution is going to be disastrous for the states disastrous for American liberty. So we're not going to agree to it. Now, of course, you had people like William Richardson Davey and James I. Riedel in North Carolina arguing for ratification, making promises that if the Constitution didn't say it could, the government was authorized to do it, the general government, it couldn't do it. 
And that's how the Constitution was agreed upon. And I, when we say there's an original intent, that's what we're talking about. It's the idea that the ratifiers of the Constitution outlined what the Constitution would mean when they were arguing for ratification. Uh, we're not Originalism is not textualism, saying, okay, well, the text says this. Textualism actually opens a door to a loose interpretation because you're not paying attention to what the people who wrote it and ratified it said it would mean. That's originalism. And so there were a number of very important originalists in North Carolina. But then moving forward, you had uh, some, some interesting statesmen from North Carolina. One of my favorites is a, a man named Claude Kitchen. Uh, Claude Kitchen uh, opposed American entry into World War I, which made him very unpopular. Uh, there were, you know, the, the general consensus in the South at the time was, was American involvement in the war. Uh, and particularly, you know, a much more aggressive American foreign policy. So Claude Kitchen uh, was against that kind of stuff and actually lost his seat in Congress because of that. But uh, you had a number of interesting people out of North Carolina. Another one of my favorites from North Carolina is Senator Sam Irvin, uh, who followed up, uh, you know, Bailey a little bit later on. But uh, I wrote about uh, Sam Irvin in Forgotten Conservatives. Uh, Sam Irvin is a, was a giant of uh, American constitutionalism. He's often, uh, you know, painted with, uh, you know, the uh, a very uh, negative uh, way because of his opposition to civil rights. But uh, Sam Irvin then became a darling of the left when uh, he went after Richard Nixon during the Watergate uh, scandal. So uh, Sam Irvin is, is one of the more interesting members of that uh, mid-20th century Congress and I think uh, one of the more important people that we should focus on. He, he wrote a, a number of interesting little books after he retired, and he actually came out with a, uh, with a record, uh, an LP. And so uh, maybe I'll do a podcast on Sam Irvin at one point, too, because he's just a funny guy, and uh, not just that, a real giant of, uh, of legal thought. But Josiah Bailey is often forgotten, really unknown, uh, outside of uh, you know, people who are political junkies. But Josiah Bailey is a person that we should all pay attention to. Josiah Bailey, uh, like a lot of uh, Southern politicians of the day, of course he was a Democrat because uh, basically in the South you had one-party rule, essentially from the end of Reconstruction, well, what's called the end of Reconstruction, the 1870s. I would suggest Reconstruction was ongoing, still ongoing. Uh, but, you know, the period that we often consider the end of Reconstruction, 1877, historians like a nice, tidy, you know, neat, uh, you know, cutoff date, 1877, we're out. Uh, so the Democrat Party was the only party in the South after that, for the most part. And so Josiah Bailey was a Democrat. And like a lot of Democrats, um, he became a progressive in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century. And the shift there, of course, was William Jennings Bryan uh, and the... Um, and the move for, uh, for the Democrats from a more conservative, you know, Cleveland-based party to a little more uh, liberal, progressive-based party. But I think sometimes that's a misnomer. What the Democrats really were in the late 19th and early 20th century, when you look at Dem progressivism at the time, uh, they had decided they were going to use the apparatus of the general government to get back at New England. Uh, and I think that's very clear when you look at things like uh, the the uh, the Glass Act, uh, when you look at uh, you know Carter Glass of Virginia, uh, Henry Stegall of of Alabama, Oscar Underwood of Alabama. When you start looking at these people, Henry Delamar Clayton of Alabama. When you start looking at 
some of the legislation that came out uh, in that Wilson period, when, when Woodrow Wilson was president, a lot of it is based on the idea that um, the fusion of government and finance capitalism is a bad thing. So, I, you know, I think libertarians would agree with that. You know, we're, libertarians are not um, anti-capitalism, but certainly many libertarians bristle at the idea of a central banking system and a fusion of government and finance capitalism. It's a, it's a bad thing. And so these Democrats, who were progressives, were looking at it in the exact same way under Jeffersonian principles. That was the important thing. It's just that they had dropped their distrust for the central government. And it's almost like what they were saying is, look, you created this monster New England, so we're going to use it against you in regulating the tar out of this fusion of government and finance capital, banking. And, of course, you can go back to people like John Taylor of Caroline uh, for that particular position, Taylor uh, was more Jeffersonian than Jefferson himself. Uh, and so when I, when I mentioned our book, Forgotten Conservatives, it's a much superior book uh, because of our uh, chapters on several people that, uh, that Tucker misses, um, including John Taylor of Caroline. So uh, I, I think you know, if, you, if you want to get, I would recommend getting this uh, Conservative Heroes. It's, um, I think you can get it pretty cheap now. Uh, but uh, get our book as well, Forgotten Conservatives in American History. Uh, you, I think you'll be much more pleased with that particular book. Now, uh, let's let's talk about Bailey and what happens. So Bailey uh, is elected to the Congress during the Wilson administration, um, and uh, he is, uh, you know, very much a pro-Wilson Democrat. You know, he led the the. Uh, the Wilson campaign in North Carolina. And then, of course, he, he, he was a lawyer. So after uh, Wilson's out, uh, Bailey goes back to practicing law. And uh, he's elected to the U.S. Senate in the uh, 1930s. And, of course, he supported Franklin Roosevelt, as did most progressive Democrats. Now, the other interesting thing about Roosevelt, uh, about this period of time, is that Roosevelt's platform, the Democrat platform in 1932, actually called for tax cuts and spending cuts. Because, I mean, Roosevelt was running around saying the real problem with the government, uh, the real problem with the Great Depression in 1932 was that the Hoover administration was taxing and spending too much. So we need to cut taxes, cut spending, and save the economy that way. Now, of course, that would have been accurate. That's exactly what needed to happen. And Josiah Bailey bought it. So he's out running around campaigning for Franklin Roosevelt saying, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go in the government. We're going to get rid of this big government, big taxing, big spending policy, and we're going to rein in government. Well, of course, when Franklin Roosevelt becomes president, he does the exact opposite, and the Depression drags on. So Bailey in the Senate became an immediate opponent of Franklin Roosevelt in, in some ways. Now, um, you know, I think that people, the Democrats, of course, gave Roosevelt a chance and, and just passed through all of his legislation, but eventually Bailey bristled at the excessive spending and government programs, and he really had a problem when Roosevelt tried to pack the U.S. Supreme Court. That was a move that Roosevelt made that I think was his undoing. Uh, and this is a one of those episodes in American history that uh, you know often goes uh, unnoticed. But you know when Roosevelt came out and said, "Look, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, here's my plan. I want to add a Supreme Court justice for every justice over a certain age." 
basically giving him 15 Supreme Court justices. And everyone understood what the problem was here. The Supreme Court had invalidated the AAA and the NIRA, the Agricultural Adjustment Administration and the National Industrial Recovery Act. He had, he had invalidated those pieces of legislation. The court had invalidated those pieces of legislation, and Roosevelt wanted to get back at the court. They were blocking his New Deal. And so this was a way to do it. Now, Congress certainly has the authority to enlarge or shrink the court. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that. If, if, if the Congress wanted to rein in what the federal court is doing, well, they could just abolish the entire federal court system except for the Supreme Court. Why not? I mean, this is, this is the remedy that Congress can actually have, and I've talked about that on this podcast before. If you want to do in the, the federal court system, well, just get Congress to do it. They could abolish the Ninth Circuit Court, for example. They could do anything they want with the federal court system. The only thing they cannot abolish is the Supreme Court. However, they could make it a three-man court if they wanted to. They could get rid of six justices. The Congress has all the authority over the court. The court is actually the weakest branch of the three branches of the, of the general government. The Congress is the most powerful constitutionally. <clears throat> the Senate has extreme checks over the executive branch if it wanted to exercise those checks. So uh, the Congress has all the authority, and it could do whatever it wanted. But the problem is we've got an executive and judiciary government. And, of course, why did that happen? Well, you can read how, how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America, and I get into all that. It's Hamilton and then three federal judges. Uh, and the states, of course, also were a check on the whole system, and they've been rendered impotent by Hamiltonianism. Uh, so Bailey recognizes this is a problem. The, the executive branch is off the rails now, and something needs to be done. And so he helps lead the fight against Franklin Roosevelt's court packing scheme. And, of course, that does not endear him uh, to the president. But uh, the other thing that happens is in 1937, uh, Bailey issues something that's now known as the Conservative Manifesto. Uh, and essentially all this was was a 10-point plan that was published in the Washington Post. Um, and all it was going to do is say, look, this is what we need to do in the general government. These are the principles that we need to rely upon in the Congress, and we need to get back to real fiscal restraint. Now, this thing was uh, essentially dead on arrival because the government was going to do nothing of the sort. But it showed that Bailey was willing to break ranks. I mean, most of the Democrats were still supporting the New Deal and big, you know, big government, big spending. But Bailey had kind of gotten to a point where you know, that was not going to be acceptable anymore. And it's also interesting because this was a bipartisan Manifesto. You, he had Republicans sign on to it, Democrats sign on to it, mostly Southern Democrats sign on to this thing. And of course, it's a precursor to what's eventually going to happen in the South when the Southern Democrats will become Republicans uh, and break ranks and uh, you know buck history uh, and become Republicans. But the Conservative Manifesto, and I'm going to read uh, some of the points, and actually uh, Tucker does a pretty good job and, and uh, describing the manifesto. Um, but he says this, quote, The manifesto's preface addressed concerns over the recession and the need to abandon deficit spending and reaffirm basic free market principles. So that's the other interesting thing about the Franklin Roosevelt administration. Uh, in 1937, we had a quote-unquote recession, not a depression. It was a recession. And in fact, it was Franklin Roosevelt who first coined that phrase. 
because they didn't want people to think we're back in a depression. But the economy took a dip in 1937. Uh, and, of course, now we have this term recession, just like we had a depression in 2007, but we just called it a recession. It really was a depression. If this was the 19th century, it would have been called a panic. That's exactly what it was. Tucker goes on. The statement called for reliance on, quote, liberal investment of private savings as a means of employment rather than continued increases in public spending. Well, this is exactly what you have to do if you want to save. I mean, investment is wealth. Government spending and credit is not wealth. That's debt. And so debt is never wealth. And, of course, debt leads to all kinds of problems. Uh, this is another quote. It ought to be borne in mind that private enterprise, properly fostered, carries the indispensable element of vigor. And that's what Bailey was saying in the Conservative Manifesto. That's his quote. And then Tucker continues, the manifesto laid out ten points or paramount principles, as Bailey called them. Number one, quote, the capital gains tax and the undistributed profits tax ought thoroughly to be revised at once so as to free funds for investment. So here is the basis, here is the beginning in so many ways of the position that capital gains taxes need to be reduced or eliminated. That this would help spur private enterprise and, of course, investment. And when you get people investing and you get private capital, you create a better, more thriving economy. Well, Bailey was pointing that out in this conservative manifesto. Number two, government spending must be reduced to achieve, quote, a balanced national budget and an end to those fears which deter investment, which, of course, is excessive debt. Now, there have been, there's been talk about a balanced budget for years. And uh, uh, I did a show with Tom Woods where we talked about <clears throat> uh, there were some proposed amendments to the Constitution, and one of them has always been a balanced budget amendment. Now, of course, this can create problems, and I think there's an argument against that. Uh, you know, if you balance the budget... Well, at one point, if your budget's doing it, you get a tax successfully to get the budget in balance. Um, so you'd also have to have a corresponding amendment to limit spending. Number three, the United States must bring an end to coercion and violence in labor relations and ensure the con constitutional guarantees of the rights of person and of property, the right of the worker to work, of the owner to possession, of every man to enjoy in peace the fruits of his labor. Number four, we oppose every government policy tending unnecessarily to compete and with and discourage private enterprise. Pretty interesting. Number four, uh, the value of investment and the circulation of money depends upon reasonable profit, not only to protect the investment and assure confidence, but also to provide increasing employment and consumption of goods from farm and factory. We favor the competitive system as against either private or government monopoly. Now, this one's loaded. That's an interesting point because uh, what is reasonable profit? Of course, you know, Bailey here is showing his progressivism in a way. What is reasonable profit? Uh, now, he's also showing in some ways his southern roots uh, because, again, that Jeffersonian idea that, you know, uh, you know big uh, uh, the fusion of government and finance is a bad thing and, of course, the distrust of big banks. Um, but he's also saying, you know, we're against private or government monopoly. Well, you know, the whole point of business, if you go into business and you're not trying to monopolize the business, you're, you're not a very good businessman. Um, if you're not saying, I want to be the only game in town so I can make as much money as possible, then you're, you're going into business for the wrong reasons. Uh, you want to, now, I mean, everyone recognizes there's competition, and, and anyone who goes into business will realize that there's always going to be competition. And uh, that uh, you know, competition does drive better products and services. Uh, 
and that you probably will never be the only game in town. But anyone that chews away from your profits, is, is, uh, that's, that's a bad thing for you. Number six, credit depends upon security. And so policies must safeguard the collateral, which is the basis of credit. So in other words, private property. Seven, there ought to be a reduction in the tax burden. And if this is impossible, firm, assur- firm, assur- firm assurance of no further increase to be given. Now, here is where the manifesto is a little soft. Uh, you needed to actually have a firm guarantee that taxes would be reduced, not just not increased. I actually like number eight. Number eight is important because this, again, shows the Jeffersonian roots of this entire thing. But, quote, except where state and local government control are proven deficient, I'm sorry, definitively inadequate. Let me start this again. Except where state and local control are proven definitively inadequate, we favor the vigorous maintenance of states, right, of home rule, and local self-government. Otherwise, we shall create more problems than we solve. Now, again, this is a, it's not strong enough. It's not a strong enough assertion of a Tenth Amendment position because he's saying except where state and local control are proven definitively inadequate. Well, where is that? I mean, if you want to get down to brass tacks here, well, then you can say the areas of Article One, Section 8, which the founding generation said, well, these are the things the states are going to allow the central government to do because we can't do them individually well. And that's basically commerce and defense. Everything else should be left to the states. Everything else should be left to the states. All other political issues are state issues. So, uh, again, a little soft. He could have been a little harder on these things. Number nine, the administration of relief to the unemployed, poor, and suffering ought to be non-political and non-partisan and temporary, as well as economical, so as to encourage individual self-reliance and maintain the natural impulses of kinship and benevolence of local responsibility in county, city, and state. So again, he's not coming out hard and saying we need to get rid of the welfare state, but he's saying it needs to be reduced. So essentially what you're looking at here is, in some ways, uh, compassionate conservatism. I mean, that's what, uh, you know, that's, or a dynamic conservatism, as Eisenhower called it. Essentially, it's the New Deal without, uh, you know, a little softer New Deal. And finally, we propose to preserve and rely upon the American system of private enterprise and initiative and our American form of government. It is not necessary to claim perfection for them. On the record, they are far superior to and infinitely to be preferred to any other so far devised. They carry the priceless content of liberty and the dignity of man. So the manifesto is soft. But, of course, it's interesting because here you've got Josiah Bailey breaking ranks from the Democrats. I mean, that was... That was a difficult thing to do in 1937. The Democrats controlled every vestige of the federal government. And so you're coming out and saying, I'm going to join hands with Republicans and say that the Democrats are going too far in their advocacy of big government, big spending, the New Deal, etc., etc. And you also see in this manifesto some of the origins of you know, more modern conservatism. There are a couple of points that I think are fantastic in that manifesto, though, that at least somebody is restating them. And that, of course, was number eight with the statement of federalism, because that's what that is. And also the statement that, you know, what we need, we need a balanced budget. We need to rein in spending. Uh, we, need to, we need to have a firm uh, discussion on cutting taxes. And the fact that recognizing that government does not create jobs. Government does not create uh, a sound, vibrant economy. 
Only private investment can do that. Only private property can do that. Credit is not wealth. And I think, you know, if, if you look at America from 1913 when the Federal Reserve was created until now, and of course, Southerners resisted that Federal Reserve. One of the more famous was Arsene Pujo of uh, Louisiana, the Pujo Commission, which went out and attacked the, uh, the proposal. Uh, but when you look at this Jeffersonian critique of America, I think that's the, uh, the interesting thing uh, about Jeffersonian conservatism, and that and John Taylor was was uh, John Taylor of Caroline was right on here. Uh, you know, it's big banks and big government, but more important, the fusion of big banks and big government—that's a real problem. And of course, the Federal Reserve is just that. Uh, but moving forward, you know, this is what we've had: we've had an expansion of credit, and credit has been the enemy. And so, uh, now people would say, "Well, credit's good because I mean, look at all look how look how much wealth people have. They have so many things. We can buy stuff." But, of course, the argument against that is malinvestment. Uh, the overexpansion of credit creates debt, and debt creates inflation. And uh, now we have a, a, a debt that can never be serviced. Uh, and in short order, just servicing the debt is going to assume the entire federal budget. We're, we're almost at a tipping point where there's, and I think you could argue that we are at a tipping point, where there's no turning back. The only, the only uh, remedy is default. Uh, and so then what's going to happen? Uh, but uh, when you look at 1937, you, you say people were warning. That, I mean, the signals, were, warning signs were there. People were, were saying, wait, wait a second here. We can't keep on doing this. Uh, and, of course, the debt was far less than it is today. Uh, one thing you can say that's negative about the Grover Cleveland administration, he kept signing off on budgets. He had your first billion-dollar Congress at that time. Uh, but And Cleveland, uh, of course, you know, signed into law uh, the uh, uh, the creation of uh, the Interstate Commerce Commission, among other things. So, uh, but um, it, it's interesting to note that uh, here you have 1937. Uh, you have Josiah Bailey saying, you know, enough is enough. We got to stop. And of course, here we are, 70 years later, uh, 80 years later, actually, and it's only gotten worse. But I think it's important to go back and find these people who were actually you know, turning on the red light and saying, wait a second, put the brakes on this thing. This thing is, uh, is out of control. And by finding these people, this is where history can become uh, interesting for our current public discourse. Um, and you can say, well, anyway, people were there sounding the, you know, sending out warning bells. We've got to stop. And, of course, that's, that's uh, without question. It needs to stop. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this. Again, go out and uh, conservative heroes, Garland Tucker. You can also get Forgotten Conservatives in American History, written by yours truly, also Clyde Wilson. Uh, and uh, don't forget to go out and take advantage of the promotions, the giveaways that I have for uh, how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. Again, how you do that is you send me a screenshot of your purchase of your book from Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you know, wherever you can buy it. Also, eBooks count for that if you want to buy the Kindle version pre-order that. You can do that as well. Just send your screenshot to blamehamilton at gmail.com and uh, I can uh, shoot you over. If you order one, you get the, the e-book, The Jeffersonian Solution. If you order two or more, you can only get the e-book. You also get the six-lecture course and you get uh, registered for the drawing for the master-level membership to Liberty Classroom for the grand prize. So you're going to want to do that. Okay, I'll see you next time on The Brian McClendon Show.